0: guys, something cool happened to me, true story, uh, recently that I just got to tell you about. A few weeks ago, I got an unexpected letter from an attorney in Germany. So Bischke is a German name, Beischke is how it's pronounced. And so I got this, this unexpected letter from an attorney on behalf of an old uncle in Germany that I didn't even know I had. His name was Friedrich Beischke. Well, he passed away. So that's really sad. Yeah, thank you for, for your support and, and sympathy with that. But but this attorney, his attorney discovered that I was his sole living relative. Isn't that insane? And that meant that that was the sole heir of his pretty sizable estate. Isn't that great? Anybody feeling skeptical? He said, all I need to do is send him a check for $1,000. He's going to release some important paperwork and I'll be golden. Does, but it was like on letterhead, so it's got to be real, right? I mean, so, I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit of a scam. I'm super skeptical of scams. And, and, you know, the only way to know if something is a scam or not, what do you do? You got to look into it, right? So I did. And you will never guess. You're going to be stunned by this, but there is no late Uncle Friedrich. So, guys, some of you came in today and you're skeptical of Christianity and you are wondering if it's a scam or not. But I got to encourage you, if you really are going to encounter Jesus, you have to process your skepticism. You got to look into it. You got to think through it. You got to consider his claims. The greatest claim that Jesus ever made was that he was God. That he was going to die for us and that he was going to rise from the dead. And Christianity claims that Jesus did rise from the dead. So. Perhaps you're here today and you've got the intellectual integrity to say, you know what, yeah, when it comes to the resurrection, I've got some questions, I've got some doubts, I'm a little skeptical, I want to encourage you, I don't blame you, and if you've got that intellectual integrity, lean into that tension, it might even seem counterintuitive, but... I want to encourage it to lean into those doubts, to lean into those questions, insofar, please hear this, insofar is that it leads you into diligent curiosity. Diligent curiosity to what you're doubting. In fact, one of the best things that you can do is to scrutinize Christianity in general and the resurrection in particular. Because here at Ada, they encourage you to look into it, right? So do it. Some of you have never been skeptical of the resurrection. And you should be, because it's an absurd story, unless it's true. How do you know if it's true? Have you ever really looked into it with great diligence? So I wanna encourage you to do that. Don't just blindly believe in it, look into it. And here's an important idea for our message today. Skepticism isn't unhealthy if it leads to diligent curiosity, to diligent curiosity. See, there's, there's negative skepticism, Which is where you doubt something and you're just like, yeah, you just dismiss it all together and you don't look into it. That's negative. Positive skepticism is when you have uh, enough questions and doubt that you actually say, I want to explore that some more. I want to look into that. I'm going to ask some questions. I do this to my kids all the time. What's the root word of the word questions? Quest. Isn't that cool? Whenever you ask questions, you go on an adventure of discovery. And I believe that as we ask questions about the resurrection today, and one scene in particular out of John chapter 20, and I encourage you if you have a Bible or a device where you could look it up to go ahead and do that now. But as we ask these questions, we're going to go on a quest where we just may encounter God. That's been my prayer as I've been preparing this time. One of the best ways to look into the resurrection of Jesus is to look into the historical evidence of Scripture. We're just going to enter into one scene of that. There's all kinds of ways you could explore that. Today we're just going to look into this one scene in John chapter 20 to help you to be able to get curious about the resurrection. And we're going to do this by being confronted with three questions. And these are three of the most profound questions that humanity has ever encountered. Cool thing is... All three of these questions were asked by Jesus himself. And they still linger today. So let's look into John 20, starting in verse 1. Here we go. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. I'm ready. All right, just checking. All right, Early on the first day of the week, this is the Easter Sunday morning. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, and the one Jesus loved. Now, real quick pause there. Who wrote the Gospel of John. This is not a trick question. John, okay. John wrote the gospel of John. And he refers to himself in his own gospel as the disciple Jesus loved. So when it says something like, so they came running to to Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Can't you just imagine Peter going, hey, wait a second. Does this mean Jesus didn't love me? Of course not. But I just get a little bit of a kick out of that. And said to them, Mary said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've put him. Now just get get a load of this. There's a few little more pieces of, of humor in this, ironically, in this story. So starting again in verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. So John wants us to know there's a foot race going on here. Now check this out. There's a few times something happens. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, why is that important to know? Because John wants you to know he's faster than Peter. It's hilarious. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in because he was being respectful, right? Then Simon Peter, who was way behind him, finally arrived and just barged right into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside and he saw I just think that it's such a beautiful thing that even in the midst of the resurrection story, we have these little components, these little pieces that just show us how human the disciples were. And biblical scholars actually say that these little bits of humor point toward the authenticity of the resurrection accounts. Um, My oldest daughter, Lucy, made me laugh not too long ago. She knew that I was preparing uh, this message. And so she says, Daddy, if there aren't many people there to hear your message and it's really good, don't worry. God will multiply it. I oh that's sweet. But then she goes, but if there are a lot of people there and your message isn't very good, and she just cringes. Thanks, Lou. That's super encouraging. But guys, I don't think I could possibly mess up this message. So I want to point something out. Remember in verse 6, Peter saw something. I want you to see that. Peter saw the strips of linen. This is important to understand because this is a special Greek word that John uses. It's not the usual word for simple sight, and that's the word blepo. This is the word theoreo, which means to observe intently with a desire to understand or to make sense. Theoreo, it's where we get our word theorize from. So what John wants us to understand is that Peter was trying hard to connect the dots. He was considering the evidence. He was asking a ton of questions. In other words, Peter was ferociously curious about what he was seeing and about what it could really mean He was positively skeptical. Again, skepticism is healthy if it drives you to curiosity. So Peter looked into it. He's asking himself questions. Is this a scam? Why isn't his corpse in the tomb? Did somebody take it? Was it the religious leaders? Was it the soldiers? Who would have done this? But then eventually his mind trips into probably the most haunting questions of all. Is it over? Is everything that we have been working for... These few years, is it just gone? Then, verse 10, let's keep going. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. The guys just leave her there in the dark. Nice job, boys, right? As she wept, she bent over and she looks into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated there where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, why didn't she realize that it was Jesus? You ever wondered that if you've read this before? I, is, is it because it was, it was too dark? Maybe. Is it because have you ever cried so hard that your, your vision is actually blurred because there's so many tears? Maybe. Or is it possible that there was just too much evidence to the contrary that Mary herself had seen because she saw Jesus just a few days ago die right in front of her, right before her eyes. But then Jesus says something. In fact, he asks something. And it's the first great question to ever confront humanity. And here it is. And he asks this question to help us and her to encounter the real Jesus. Just in case you missed it the first time when the, Angels asked it. Jesus says, woman, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Well, guys, let's answer this. Why is Mary crying? Because she's looking for a lost corpse, not a living king. Remember, she watched as the one she'd put all her hopes in died. And death has a way of shattering our dreams, doesn't it? When I first felt called into ministry, I actually was walking in the halls of a hospital. I was a hospital chaplain in Chicago and then in Dallas. And I can tell you, as I would walk through those halls in my mid-20s and come alongside families, uh, sometimes there were happy experiences, but most often they were extremely difficult experiences. And very often where someone had died or was dying. And I can tell you in seeing that, The lowest common denominator of all those experiences of people dying, and I had seen hundreds of people die, were tears. There was one story in particular that I'll share just briefly. When I was getting ready in my dorm room in the morning and I had heard on the news an accident, a horrible accident that had happened on Lakeshore Drive. And right then my phone rings and it's the hospital calling me in. And saying there's a a DOA on the way in, Uh, it's a 21-year-old boy, a young man, and the, the doctor wants you to tell the mom who's on her way now. Oh, great. So I make my way to the hospital, thinking, how in the world, what am I? How, what, what do you say? They lead me into the room, I get there just before... Uh, the mother does, this, this young man, he's 21 years old, African-American man. I still remember the specks of, of blood on his face where the, the glass had shattered and come through as a car had jumped over the median of Lakeshore Drive and hit him head on with he and his three friends who instantly died. And he's just lying there, but he's dead. And the mom comes in, and I got to be honest, I had no idea what to say. No idea at all. So I didn't say anything. I probably just said, I'm so sorry. And I put my arm around her and she's weeping and she's lifting up his arm and dropping it, yelling, wake up. And she'd turn and cry on my chest and and, and beat my chest and say, why won't he wake up? And I just remember her tears. But all I knew what to do was to be present. Guys, the lowest common denominator when we encounter death, are tears, why is Mary crying here? Because she's mourning. Because she saw Jesus die and death has a way of bringing out our tears. She thinks it's over. She feels despair. She's discouraged. She feels defeated. She probably even feels duped for believing in him in the first place. Because there had been dozens of men who had claimed to be the Messiah in the decades before Jesus came. And 201, Each one was killed by the Romans and their movements died out immediately. Every time. But when Mary heard Jesus teach, when Mary saw Jesus heal, and he even healed her, we're told in Luke 8, Jesus removed seven demons from her. When she saw Jesus power over demons, power over nature, power over the world, the the religious leaders. When she saw Jesus' tenacity and humility, his his brilliance and and yet his his boldness, his compassion and, and yet his courage, she believed, really believed that he was different. But then she saw him die. And she saw him get buried. That's why she's crying. So This is an interesting question. Why are you crying? She, she didn't go to his tomb with a cake and confetti to do a countdown for the resurrection. Now We know that in the future. But she didn't know that then. Nobody did. Nobody knew Jesus was going to rise from the dead. He was dead. So she went to cry. She went to mourn him. And can I just do a quick time out here and just pause and share a personal pet peeve of mine. It's when someone says perception is reality. I'd like to invite you just a covenant to stop saying that. Because it's a total crock. Okay. It's horrible logic. Is Mary's perception reality here? No. No. Guys, don't miss the irony. Mary is discussing her despair with the one she thinks is dead. Mary and Peter and John all thought it was over. That was their perception of the events. But thank God the reality was directly the opposite of their perception, right? They were looking for a lost corpse, but they encounter a living king. Friends, perception is not reality. In fact, reality may be the opposite of your perception. Because Mary is about to realize that the one that she thought was lying dead in a tomb is standing right in front of her, alive. And through Jesus' question, what are you crying about? Which I'm sure was asked in a way that was as playful as it was compassionate. She's about to realize that through his death and resurrection to life, Jesus has crushed everything she's crying about. That means death is defeated That means Jesus did everything he said he was going to do. That means Jesus was everything he claimed to be. And he's done it all. Because he's alive, that means it's not over. And and someone is here today just needs to hear that. Because we all have plenty to cry about, right? Some of us more than others. You went through a divorce this year and you think that life, as you know it, is over. I get it. You lost your job this year and you think it's over. You're haunted by the thought that something that you did years ago has separated you from God forever. That you're the exception to all this grace and victory talk. So you think it's over. You haven't talked with your grown son in two years and you think it's over. The test came back positive and you think it's over. You didn't get in the college you wanted to get into and you think it's over. That's why you're crying. But friends, I want you to hear that God encounters us in our grief. This question, what are you you crying about? is helping us to think and to process and to realize that very often, and I found this to be true in my life, extreme grief usually leads me into a deeper experience of extreme grace. When I was 23 years old... Uh, That was the week that I found out that I didn't get into the law school that I would worked for several years and school and work to be able to get into. My dad was uh, a trial attorney for 25 years in Chicago and then a judge for 30 years in Chicago. And and I really felt like I was wired up to follow in his footsteps. I knew it was going to please him. I just couldn't wait to get out there and to argue cases. But I found out I didn't get into the school that I really wanted to get into, and it was devastating to me. And during that same period of time, just within a few days, I also had an engagement where I was engaged to someone who I was as sure was the one. And that engagement fell apart. And I think most of us tend to put uh, our life eggs in one of two or two baskets, and that is career and relationships. That is exactly what I had done. And it fell apart. And you know what? My dreams were shattered. And I thought in that moment, it was over. And I even wondered why I continue to go on and was even processing what that would look like. I thought it was over. And as I was stuck in this despairing perspective for months, it took God breaking me out of it with other friends and those who were challenging me and asking me to think about some things to be able to understand his grace and to encounter his grace in the midst of my grief. And it was during that season of my life And this is just this is a period of days and weeks that God completely rerouted my life, took my breath away by calling me into ministry, where I have the ridiculous honor of arguing the greatest case of all until my last dying breath. Really cool piece about this. Soon after I fully surrendered my life to Jesus during that season, my grandmother, who's also named Mary, told me that she had been praying every day since I was a baby that I would become a pastor. Is that cool? I'm so glad she didn't tell me that beforehand. It would have messed with me. But it was so encouraging afterwards. Because it gave me this clearer view of those darker days when I thought it was over. The reality was it wasn't over. And it was during my second year of seminary that God brought into my life the woman who really was and is the one. 27 years and counting, my wife Annie. Guys, what I thought was the finish line was actually the starting line in reality. I thought my life was over, but God was saying, no, Marcus, I'm only getting started. This is actually just the beginning. And so it was during that season of grief that because of Jesus, that because of the cross, that because of the empty tomb, because of his grace, I came to realize it's not over. It's the first question. Why are you crying? But then Jesus asked Mary the second greatest question humanity's ever encountered. It's in verse 15 again. Who is it you're looking for? Who is it you're looking for? Ultimately, the answer to why she's crying is the who she's crying for. For Mary, her why was a who. Remember, she's looking for a lost corpse, but she encounters a living king. And she's slow to realize that because it's so not what she's expecting. That's why I think he asks this question gently, and I I really think with a smile on his face. You can even think about it, the tone that he must have used. Who are you looking for? He's just waiting for it to, to dawn on Mary. You know, I think God is curious how you would answer that question, too. Because if the first question, "Why you're crying?" is a question about grief and how you handle the disappointments in life, this question, "Who are you looking for?" is a question about meaning and purpose and what you pursue. Who are you looking for? In all of your pursuits for what, are you really looking for a "who? And all of your pursuits for impact, or for pleasure, or meaning, or success, or fame, or wealth, or likes and followers, have you developed a nagging sense yet that there's still something more? Well, this weekend, we hope you figure out that that something you're looking for is actually a someone. It's Jesus. It's a living person who came to be in a real relationship with you. Speaking about relationship, you just got to see this next verse. Look at this next line. It's, it's amazing to me. So small but so powerful. Verse 16, first part. Jesus said to her, Mary, ask that question. Wheels are spinning. Tears are flowing. And he just says her name, Mary. You know what experts say is the most beautiful sound to your ears? It's your own name. Your own name. Unless, of course, you're a kid and your mom uses both your first and middle name. And then your toast, Right. I can remember I was five years old. My brother was seven. It was Christmas time in the Bishke house. My mom spent probably a week putting together our Christmas tree. She loved Christmas. Nine feet tall, and I'm probably about this tall at the time. It looked like a California redwood to me. Hundreds of ornaments, lights, tinsel. And I always thought as I looked at that tree, I'm going to climb that tree someday. Well, yes, friends, the day came, and it was uh, early one morning right before Christmas, and I woke up my older brother, Walt, and I said, hey, let's go climb the Christmas tree. And my older brother didn't hold me back. No, younger brother, I love you. Don't do such a thing. No, he's like, let's do it. And so we go down, and there were two chairs on either side where it was in the living room, this Christmas tree, and I got up on one side thinking he's getting up on the other, and I just launch off the, the cushion of the chair A middle top part of the tree is a pretty good jump, not too bad vertical for a five year old kid. And I land on it and I catch it, and to my incredible surprise, it does not sustain my weight. (laughs) And it just goes crashing over right on top of me, like out of National Lampoon's Christmas vacation or something. and, And I'm just like underneath it, somewhat trapped, making a lot of noise. At this point in time, I can start to hear my parents rustling because there arose such a clatter in the house. They arose to see what was the matter, right? And so uh, my parents' bedroom door was on the way to the living room. Well, my brother, as soon as the tree is timbering, starts to run back up to his room, right? Back upstairs. So he's already past my parents' bedroom door. The bedroom door opens, and my brother does something brilliant. He turns around as the bedroom door is opening like he had just come down the stairs and goes... What's going on, guys? And so my parents, my mom looks at me and goes, Marcus, David, what have you done? And I'm all there by myself, taking it all by myself because my brother was the evil genius who came up with that idea. When was the last time you heard your first and middle name? When was the last time you heard your name out of the mouth of someone you love and you know loved you? Mary. Mary. You know, I love hearing my wife Annie say my name because I can just hear the connection. Sorry, I got distracted there. I could just hear the intimacy and feel the relationship. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Mary to hear Jesus say her name? Can you imagine what it will be like one day to hear Jesus say your name? I love studying the voice of God in scripture. Imagine the voice of God saying your name the one who died on the cross for you making a breathtakingly loving exchange his perfect sinless life for yours imagine him saying your name gosh in this beautiful scene jesus doesn't say yo girl or hey mary pardon me miss magdalene he says mary Whew. and in that very moment guys just in that split second when mary hears his voice saying her name she believes It's proof she realized it's not over. Just think about that from her perspective. How How does she react? Well, let's see. Jesus says to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in her mother tongue. Very instinctive, primal for her, Aramaic, Rabboni, or teacher. And then she apparently gives Jesus the bear hug to end all bear hugs because he says, with, I imagine, a chuckle in his voice and a lot less air in his lungs, don't hold on to me. I haven't yet returned to the Father. Instead, go, one of Jesus' favorite commands, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my father, and what does he say? And your father. To my God, and what? And your God. It's relationship. In other words, my resurrection is proof my sacrifice on the cross worked. Relationship between us is real. And so go and tell the boys, it's not over. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And I can just imagine when she ran back to the guys, no doubt way faster than Peter and even John. She remembers a statement and a question that Jesus uh, had asked her sometime earlier uh, that she had overheard. And, and it seemed bizarre to her at the time. But now it makes all kinds of sense. He said this in John chapter 11. You can see it. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And real quick, you need to understand, those are Siamese twin realities for Jesus, by the way. Because because he's the resurrection, he is the life. And because he's the life, he is the resurrection. In other words, he's God. And then he drops the greatest question you'll ever encounter. And there's a third question. So we have a question about grief. We have a question about meaning. And now we have a question about conviction. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And in fact, in the original language, the way it's written, you is first. It's emphatic. Do you believe this? And so I want to ask each one of you, skeptics and all, do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? I once heard someone say, and I'm not sure who said it, but I love it. Whatever you think about Jesus is the most important thought you will ever have. I totally agree. So, what do you think about Jesus? Do you believe that he is who he said he is? Do you believe that he's God? Do you believe that he's alive or not? And based on what evidence? You need to be able to explain that to back it up. Because whatever you think about Jesus and his resurrection, it will reshape your present and your future. It will shape your identity and your destiny. So what do you think? And if you're still skeptical, that's fine. Just keep wrestling with that skepticism. Just keep asking more questions. Just keep looking into it. Because the more curious you get, and the more digging that you do, the more you're going to come, going to, come to realize, I fully believe, as I did too, that Jesus' resurrection shouts, it's not over. Because God himself loved you enough not to leave you in a broken place, alone, tired, tired. Grieving, searching. It's not over, Jesus' resurrection shouts. And so here's what it's not over means for you. I want to share three things with you as we close down together. And feel free to cheer if any of these realities are true for you. The first thing it's not over means is this it's not over means because Jesus is alive, your failures are not fatal. Your failures are not fatal. One thing I didn't share with you about that story about me in my mid-20s when my life really came crashing down was that I deliberately went my own way. Guys, I can actually remember, and it's to my great shame to share this to you, I literally prayed the prayer. God, I got it covered. Thanks. I figured it out. I'm marrying the woman I want to marry. I'm going down the career path I got. I'm good. Like you can focus on other people who might need you. And what do we know about people who experience pride? Well, God allowed me to experience these broken dreams in a way that now I talk about them as he graciously shattered my lesser dreams. I was running down my own path. I was rebelling from him. But he allowed me to experience a pain from my sin and from my rebellion that turned me around. And what that helped me to understand in that moment, and what the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, not the perception of it, but the reality of it, is that it's not over. And what that means is you can survive your screw ups, you can make it past your mistakes, you really can. Sin doesn't win, your defects don't define you. Dysfunction does not have to be your destiny. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, the sting of death is sin. But thanks be to God, he's given us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why is it true that your failures aren't fatal? Because Jesus fully paid the penalty of your sin for your sin on the cross. And you know how we know that the cross worked? Again, his resurrection proves it. The father accepted his son's sacrifice, so your failures can be forgiven. Your failures are not fatal. Second things that mean it means it's not over means is this: your pain has a purpose. I don't know the last time you might have looked at the story of Joseph in Genesis. If you haven't done that in a while, man, and if you're in some pain right now, I encourage you to check that out. It's unbelievable. To see how God used pain and to bring about purpose in Joseph's life. It's not over means. Your pain has a purpose. Over the course of the last five years in particular, our family in general and me in in specific have experienced an incredible amount of crises. From a child being in the hospital for four months straight. To being a part of a church where there was a moral failure and then an implosion of leadership that lasted years And I can remember during that time, a friend came up to me and saw that I was grieving and hurting through the pain that I was going through. And he said, Marcus, I need you to understand something. You're grieving right now. And you've heard it said that there are five stages of grief. There's not, there's six. And the last one is meaning. I want to challenge you learn everything you can learn about what God is teaching you as you're going through this pain, because it has a purpose. And through that time, God put me through like a PhD in leadership pain. And I'm so grateful for the deepening that it brought to my heart. Because it gave a meaning to the difficulty, to the challenge. Because there is a purpose to the pain. And I want you to consider the greatest pain that the earth has ever experienced. Or anyone on the earth has ever experienced. That would be Jesus himself. God himself, who had no sin and yet experienced pain For us. He himself becoming sin on the cross for us and experiencing the judgment of God on our behalf. Guys, do you realize that we had to have Good Friday to be able to have Easter Sunday? Because all that pain had a purpose. Think about it: the Good Friday tears, they literally lit the fuse of the Easter Sunday cheers. His deepest pain paved the way for his highest praise. His pain had a purpose, and that must mean that yours does too. It's not over means your pain has a purpose. Last thing it means among the many is that it's not over means that death is not your destiny. This one's really important and personal to me because both my parents passed away prematurely from cancer. Uh, My mom, Uh, was the last one to pass away. And she drove to my office in Chicago, and she came in. I knew something was going on, and she sat down, and she said, I just came from the doctor. And he diagnosed me with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. She says maybe six years. It was six months before she was gone. And in the last several weeks, I could tell that she was a little worried. She was a little fearful. And my mom had a huge indelible influence in my life spiritually. And so it was such an honor and a gift for me to come alongside my mom and to kneel at her bed or sit down next to her bed and to hold her skinny hand and ask her a set of questions. And we did this, oh gosh, dozens of times, right? Ask her a set of questions and she would respond. And it was just a way of almost like, a, like, like saying a creed or something to, to affirm and to remind her who she was and whose she was. And I, I asked mom this. I said, mom, who are you? And she would just, she was so weak, she would just, with her eyes closed, she would just whisper, I'm a treasured child of the King of Kings. Every time I'd see her, Mom, who are you? I'm a treasured child of the King of Kings. Mom, where are you going to be one nanosecond after you breathe your last here? And she'd say, in heaven with him, because he's alive. And then I would say, Mom, will we see each other again? And she'd say, yeah. Yes, and dozens of times I'd ask her these questions because she needed to be reminded that death was not her destiny because it's not over means your faith is not futile. And where am I getting this from? Well, Jesus himself says it. Take a look at this from John 14. I love this again. It's so short. It's so powerful. Because I live, you also will live. In other words, get ready because you're next. I mean, do you realize that there's a date for your resurrection too, if you've trusted in him? Isn't that awesome to realize? Jesus' resurrection doesn't just mean he rose up. His resurrection means if you trust him, you will rise up. You've got a future and your future is full of life. This is my favorite thing that it's not over means because it means we never have to just celebrate Easter on one Sunday a year. Because I I can tell you, Um, uh, something that's really important to be able to, to understand. And that is this, Easter is not just a holiday. And so if you're treating Easter, next time Easter rolls around, please, please just don't see it as another holiday, the day where you can pound a bunch of ham and sit down and watch golf with your cousin Hank and steal your kid's marshmallow peeps. Guys, if you're doing that, you're missing out on life. Because you can live every single day you spend sucking air on this planet in the reality of Jesus' resurrection and promise of life to you. God wants his life to be the biggest rush of your life. Because he is life. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. The word is to experientially know. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. You can experience Jesus' resurrection power in your life. By the power of his spirit, you can live out a boldness in life that says, I'm not afraid of death. Because what Jesus did on that first Easter Sunday is still not over because every day is Easter now. Because Jesus is alive, it's not over. And that means it will never be over. And we want to give you a chance before you walk out of here, wherever you're watching from, to to surrender to that truth. to, To trust in him. Before I do that, I want to share one final story that I think might just help to really nail that reality in perspective for you today. A hundred years ago, there was a German artist named Frederick Retsch, and he painted a painting called The Chess Players. Here it is. I'd love for you to study it and look at it for a second. In the painting, the devil and a young king are playing chess. And the implied agreement is that the winner enslaves the loser. And so the young man's soul is at stake in this scene. And the painting is of the next to last scene of the game where the devil with a gloating face has declared checkmate. And the king, he's got most of his pieces off the board, apparently lost. And so the king has this pale despairing look on his face because his fate is sealed. It's hopeless. It's over. But one day, as this painting was hanging in a French museum, there was an international chess champion named Paul Morphy. And he encountered this painting. And he stared at it for a long time, and he studied it. He was with a a group of friends themselves, avid chess players, and they kept going on and walking on in the museum. And suddenly, they hear their friend Paul shout out, it's not over. There's still a move the king can make. And so they came running back, and they're like, "What, what are you talking about? He's like, it's not checkmate after all. The painter has overlooked one more move that the king can make to avoid defeat and, in fact, win the match altogether. And they're like, no way. And Morphe calls for a chess board to be brought over, and they reset the pieces right there in the museum, precisely as they were in the painting. And then each of his friends, and themselves great chess players, they asked for the chance to play the devil against Morphe, who represented the king. And one by one, he not only made one more move to hold off defeat, but he came back to win and to defeat the devil every time. Isn't that cool? So for years, people looked at that painting and they thought it was finished. They thought the the king's fate was sealed. They thought the game was over. But in reality, it wasn't over. Because there was another move to make. Friends, please listen to me. No matter how bleak your situation looks, no matter how broken or desperate or defeated or discouraged you've become, no matter how skeptical you are, that real hope really exists Because King Jesus is alive, you always have one more move you can make. Friends, I beg you to never forget, it's not over. Because through the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus triumphed over your worst enemies. Jesus was victorious over your most dreaded foes. Our king declawed, defanged, and defeated the devil himself. Answering those three questions, Jesus has crushed what you're crying about. Jesus is all that you're searching for. He is the resurrection and the life. You can believe it because his own resurrection proves it. So if you came in here today thinking it's over, it's not over. There's a move you can make and his name is Jesus. And you can trust in him today to find forgiveness and new life and victory in that life. And that's why I flew seven hours to tell you it's not over. Care about what God's doing through Ada and through your hearts. It's an unstoppable force. And the reason it's an unstoppable force is because we serve an unstoppable king who's still alive. Maybe we needed to be reminded of that. Can I ask you to bow your heads with me? If you're comfortable doing that, close your eyes. I'd love to ask you to talk with God for a moment. Where I come from, every time we preach a message, anytime God's word gets opened up at the end of the message, we give some time to say, God, what are you trying to tell me in this, and what do you want me to do with it? So I'd love to ask you some questions as we talk with God. Maybe speak to just a, a few of you. For those of you who are still skeptical, would you just tell God that? Pay attention to the tension that's wrestling inside of you and just lean into that. Seek to resolve it. Ask him to show you that he's real. If he's real, I'll just bet you he will. But you at least tell him that you're open-minded and curious right now, that you're committed to keep looking into it, to get to the bottom of Jesus' resurrection and what it could mean for your life if it's really true. Would you just tell God that? Then for those of you who have already trusted Well, this is a chance to thank Jesus again for his gift of life. Remembering it's a gift. Freely given and undeserved. To ask him to help you to experience his new life every single day and to live out your identity in him. Would you just tell him that right now in your own words? And then for those of you who are ready to trust ready to surrender to the reality, not the perception, but the reality that what Jesus did on that cross and through that tomb, he did for you. That you can be forgiven. That you can be restored into a relationship with the God who loves you enough to come and to give himself in your place. This is a chance for you to tell God that you're trusting him, to thank him, to accept his gifts of life and forgiveness. You trust him and he does the rest. He really does. Maybe just... Tell them something like this. Your own words, but something like this. Jesus, I believe you're alive. And I trust that you are who you claim to be. And that you came to rescue me from my brokenness and pain and sin. And right now I'm trusting in you and your grace and your life and your hope. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've done my life apart from you. I've been sinning and running and rebelling. I've gone my own way. But I'm asking you now, because I know who you are, to please forgive me, to rescue me, and to renew me. And Jesus, we all want to say, by your grace and through our faith in you, thank you that it's not over. And together, in the name of Jesus, we all said, amen. Jeff, you've got some next steps to talk about.
1: (laughs) Thank you, man. Um, It's impossible for me to imagine here at Cascade and at our other campuses, how many of you just needed those words, it's not over? And I don't have a a clue what some of you are traveling through, but you just needed to hear it today. Uh, It's not over. Marcus, thank you, man. Thank you, huge for opening the scriptures for us. Um, I want to point you to something. Uh, I'd love for some of you to have a conversation with one of our pastors um, at the Next Steps area. In, the, in each of our atriums at our campuses, there's an area called Next Steps. Uh, our campus pastors or other uh, spiritual leader will be there today, and you might want to seek that person out. And if, if you can't stop by there today, then you can go to uh, adabible.info, and there's a tab called Contact Us or Prayer. And I'd love for you to seek out a pastor for one of two reasons. One is, there are people today, as Marcus was praying, where you went, I just invited Jesus in for the first time. I don't think I've ever done this before. I would love for you to have a conversation with one of our pastors and just say, this is what I did today, and just have their encouragement. And and another type of person is just kind of like, Dude, you talk about trust in Jesus, I don't, even, I don't even think I know what that means. Asking Jesus in, I don't even think I fully understand what that means. And yet you feel drawn, you feel like God is whispering your name and you're moving and so I'd love for you to start a conversation too. We, we can only have a conversation if we you know, know who you are and get contact information. So uh, either by dropping by Next Steps, meeting a pastor there, or by uh, just e- emailing us and just saying, okay, I just really would benefit from a conversation. Then we can get uh, something started with you, which I hope would just be incredibly uh, life-giving. And so, uh, Marcus, seriously, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you In your first week (laughs) at Discovery Church For breaking away and uh, being with us And opening this powerful story with us And um, listen, may our gracious God Carry you into your week May he provide wisdom in your decision making May he provide uh, peace in your storms May he provide comfort uh, in your grief May you hear him whisper again and again And again and again that it's not over. God bless you. We'll see you next week.